Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. Dave, we are starting our third season today. Has it only that's, been three? That, that's something like, I don't know, it's 52 times three. We're, you know, we, we've, we've got a lot of episodes in the can right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and we got plenty more to come and we got exciting guests. And, and I know we're going to talk about exciting guests in a couple minutes here. A very exciting guest for us. But it's just amazing to me when we started this journey I mean, the thought of, like, it was like, you know, how many will we drop these, uh, you know, a month? And, you know, will there be enough people to interview? And it's just, it's this podcast world is massive. And it's just, there's so many interesting people. And they get, you know, I almost feel like the guests, get, you know, that have been fabulous. And they, they continue to be interesting and inspiring. And, and I'm really looking forward to today's interview. Well, today I am incredibly excited too, Dave, because as you know, Seth Godin, is somewhat of a, of a hero of both of ours. And uh, Seth is somebody who you and I both read on a daily basis with, uh, with the email blog that comes in daily. I was really privileged to be one of the ruckus makers a few years ago. So uh, Seth had a course called Ruckus Makers where literally ruckus makers from all over the world came together in this little town outside New York City and we just hung out for three days and just really got to know each other and, and listened to, to Seth teach. And he was very generous with, uh, with a lot of the philosophies and, and concepts. And uh, from there, Dave, I swear, we probably had 15 great Boiling Point guests from Ruckus Makers on this very podcast. Absolutely. At least. At least. So uh, I actually felt like I was there with you. Um, you know, based on all the conversations we had after. So, so I, we, can, we can check in with Seth today to make sure, you know, the stories connect here because, I mean, it sounded like it was a fabulous time. Exactly. And Seth, as I bring you in, uh, I want to share also the story how I was able to uh, ruckus my way into getting you into uh, one of our uh, previous films, The Millennial Dream, as well. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Seth Godin. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. Thank you both for this work. It's super generous. And I don't think you... Ruckus or manipulated me into being in it. It was a privilege, <laughs> just like it's a privilege to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So the, the story that I, I just love is that when we were at Ruckus Makers, you gave us the concept of shipping it. Like if you're going to start something, make sure you ship it. Make sure you understand when the shipping date is and you are not done until it's shipped. So when I went down to Ruckus Makers, I had the concept of millennial dream. But when I was going through the ship it journal... I was like, okay, this is not a concept. We're making this film. And I remember sending you a note and saying, Seth, I don't know if I can actually ship it until I get an interview with you in your office in New York. And you graciously said yes. So thank you for that. That film has been seen by thousands of people um, in small group settings all over North America, uh, as well as on Amazon and on PBS. And it's, it's made ripples. So thank you so much for, for the beginning of a relationship uh, with that project, Seth. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure. And I, you know, the ruckus makers thing almost killed me. It was so much work, but because it was, I don't remember, 80 or 85 people. And I did the whole thing pretty much myself. Uh, I had one or two people helping me, but I even made you lunch every day. And Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> it was super fun. 
But every time I think about doing it again, I get tired. Oh, goodness sakes. Goodness well, sakes. maybe as a way of intro for people that, that aren't familiar with your work, um, could we start there? Like, talk, you know, what, like, and I know it's your, your, your bio expands way beyond rus- ruckus makers, but where, what was, like, how did that begin? And, and, and um, that was a real introduction for, for Greg uh, and you, um, which, and I, by extension, me and, and many others. But it sounds like it was a special event. I'd love to hear kind of how that, that culminated. Okay. Well, um, I'm an author. My 19th book comes out this week. It's called This is Marketing, but I'm not really an author. I'm a teacher. And I became a teacher in Algonquin Park, Canada, north of Toronto. Uh, when I was 17, I began teaching uh, an obscure sport called style canoeing. And on that canoe dock, I learned an enormous amount about enrollment, about possibility, about fear, about making change happen. And basically, the next 40 years of my life have been about finding a similar dock, a similar place where I can do the teaching that I want to do. And um, so every time I get a chance to recreate that feeling of energy and possibility and connection, that's what I seek to do. So the online workshops are like that. And the Ruckus Maker one, certainly uh, more than almost anything we've done lately, really captured that energy because it's not about my ideas those are great i think they're worth reading but what really matters is how you take them shift them share them and then put them into the world and seth your you know you've got a very robust history as an entrepreneur certainly in the uh, in the very exciting days of, uh, of of the of the internet and social media uh, but where does your heart for teaching come from like, like, I see you as a teacher because, you know, I, I learn from you every morning when I open up your emails. Uh, and that takes a lot of energy for you to write that on a regular basis. And But where does that heart of a teacher come from for you? What I don't understand is why everyone doesn't want to make change happen. Try to figure out how to make the culture more like you think it should be. Try to help people get from where they are to where they need to go. Uh, it's like opening a door for someone who needs a door opened, but multiplied. And so once I saw what it was like to have someone stand a little taller or get to where they're going a little bit better, I was hooked on that. And the reason I'm a marketer is marketing is nothing but making change happen. That's what marketers do. And the way we make change happen isn't by blowing stuff up or knocking things down. We do it by teaching. And so marketing is just a particular form of organized teaching. And I feel like we only get one time around this go-around, one culture to live in, and we might as well work to make the culture as good as we can. Who do you find is most attracted to your work? Like, is there a certain quality? Is it just they come from a certain sector? They're a certain demographic? Like, wh- who is it that, that you find is, um, is really inspired by your work? That, that's a super question. You know, when I started coming up in the business world in the 80s, demographics were everything. There was even a magazine called American Demographics. It was mm-hmm. beautifully illustrated, mm-hmm. all about, you know, which states have the most people with a gun rack on their pickup truck. <laughs> uh, but I don't think demographics matter. I think psychographics matter. Uh, we didn't used to have access to psychographics, but now all social media is, is psychographics. People who like X like Y. People who do this, do that. And once you understand the psychographics of an audience, you can serve them better and you can reach them better. So in my case, there are several groups of people who seem to be attracted to my work. Certainly a big one is the psychographic of people who are impatient with the status quo, 
who are itching to make things better. And that's the place I go when I'm writing. I'm writing for those people, not for people who are looking for excuses, not for people who are looking for reassurance. I'm bad at reassurance, but I'm trying to set the, the table for people who want to make things better. And one of the things that you just said, Seth, is something that I keep going back to in your new book. The book is This is Marketing, is people like us do things like this. Why don't we start by talking about your new book by going a little bit deeper on that on that statement? Uh, because it really, the focus of the book, it was a beautiful book, by the way. You kept on going back to that, that concept. Why don't we expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that was going to be the title. Um, that is what culture is. Culture is people like us do things like this. You know, we certainly, we can see a herd of rhino or gazelles. They have instincts. They always do it the same way. But humans are different. You go to one town and people are eating with their hands. You go to another town and people are using chopsticks. Why is that? Because people like us do things like this. So first we begin with who are the people like us? What tribe, what group, what circle Mm -hmm. are you part of? Mm -hmm. And then the second question is what are things like this? So if you think about podcasting, The technology for podcasting existed 20 years ago, but it's only exploded in the last two or three years. Why is that? It's not because it's a great business. It's because people like us have a podcast. And once you determine that you are people like us, then you got to have a podcast because that's what people like us do. Or you say people like us listen to podcasts. And so if you want to be people like us, if you want to be able to talk about Kurt Anderson or talk about Krista Tippett, you better be listening to podcasts, otherwise you're going to get left out. This is marketing, and then the, the tagline under there is, you can't be seen until you learn to see. Tell us a little bit about how the, how you came up with that um, premise, or where that comes from. So here's the deal. Most marketers are short-term, selfish, narcissist egomaniacs. <laughs> they cut corners, and they yell at people. And they mean well, they do it because either A, they believe in their product, or B, they're in a panic and they gotta make their boss happy. But in an economy that's based on attention, where attention is scarce, where people can walk away, yelling at people doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So the alternative is to do the opposite, to see people for who they are, and to market with them and for them, not at them. And until you understand what the people you are serving want, what they need, what they think about, what they desire, they will not look at you. You're invisible. But the minute you see them and you serve them, then they can't wait for you to show up. So how, like, so how would you go about that, seeing people and really understanding? And, you know, because you, you touch on something that, that I think is so critical, and it's even, um, I'm an executive coach, and, and some of the best learning I got, um, you know, in becoming a coach was, well, first off, beware of the coach who has no coach, so you got to be practicing what you preach. But the second part of it is listening to understand versus listening to respond. And this whole idea, yeah, this whole this whole concept, and I just find it fascinating because I'm seeing um, it, where it, when it happens and where it happens, it's just, it's incredible to witness or to participate in. Um, and 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 but and yet there's a big void. There's, it's not happening in enough places. So I just um you know from your perspective, how you know how do you really see people uh, and, and you know and then be seen by them? Well, let me try to give you an example because that might be easier. Um, so in July, I was up in Canada teaching canoeing and uh, did a session. There was a nine-year-old there, and you could just tell from his affect that he wasn't 
the captain of the football team. He wasn't the big man on campus. And here he was in this boat, 16 feet long, all by himself. And it was windy on TP Lake. And he got blown around a fair amount. And we finished the session. There was 20 or 30 kids there. And at the end of the session, he came up to me and said, I'm just not going to be able to come this afternoon. Sorry, I'm really busy. And uh, that's an interesting statement. And I could inquire what he was busy with. And I could look at the take the statement at face value. Mm -hmm. But what I understood he was actually saying to me is, I'm afraid. And I don't want to say I'm afraid because that will make me more afraid. It will make me feel uh, insufficient. And if I had challenged him on being afraid and if I had brought rational uh, thinking to it and I said, you know, I've taught 2,000, 3,000 people. I haven't lost one of them. There's nothing to be afraid of. That wouldn't have made him less afraid. Because first of all, confronting it head on would have just amplified his fear. Mm-hmm. So instead, I said, let's go for a walk. And in the course of the five minutes that we talked, I talked elliptically around what he was dreaming of and what he was thinking of and what he was dancing with and enabled him to reassure himself. Because I knew that reassurance for me is futile. Reassurance in the outside world only works for a minute. But if he could reassure himself and see that he might be able to go on a journey to become the person he wanted to become, then he could on his own make a choice about going forward. And he did. And we spent the next two or three days together and it was transformative and he's a different person now. And that's because of him, not because of me. But what I was able to do was open the door and stand a little to the side so he could take ownership of his actions, he could become enrolled in the journey. And I think this is a universal message for marketers of every stripe, that instead of rushing to sell someone the next biggest Harley Davidson or to get them to vote for your candidate, we have the chance instead to say, well, what is this person dreaming of and what's keeping them from moving forward? And how do we create an environment where they can choose to go where they need to go? You know what? You know what I love about that story. Well, first, I love. Um, I mean, I think there's a really great message uh, for all the parents out there, and I'm just and I can't help but think, listen to that as a as a father of three wonderful kids, and wishing I was uh, a little more patient at times. You know, and what I found interesting is that you, you know when you describe that to 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 listen and and to be seen and then um, um, or to see and then be seen requires patience and. And and yet you uh, an, an audience that's really attracted to you is impatient, and there's so there's got to be some tension there, right? Or, or I'm guessing. Oh, I, lo- I love this. This is brilliant. Yeah. So the easiest way for me to meet external metrics would for me to sell easy, quick, simple shortcuts. That if you go to market with easy, simple shortcuts, the line out the door, as far as you can see. And I refuse to do that, and I've always refused to do that. Because what I know is it will inevitably not work. And the shortest route happens to look like the longest one. So in 1999, I wrote Permission Marketing. I wrote it in 98, so that's 20 years ago. And the people who patiently built a permission base ended up building Groupon, Google, Facebook, etc. And the people who took the shortcut, they're still looking for another shortcut. And it turns out that the best route to where you want to go happens to be the one that requires patience. 
It is such a, and it's like totally opposed to your 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 gut instinct, right? Because you're 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 talking to two impatient, I would say, people, <laughs> and at the same time, every business lesson I learn is to be patient and and you know to make sure you you keep your vision clear. And um, but that I find that I find that fascinating because we're in such a rush that um, we're missing all these wonderful stories around us and learning, and and, and there's so much um, so there's so rich around us, and part of what I'm really enjoying about a podcast is that it causes you to slow down yeah. and, and have a conversation that, you know, I'd hope we could have over a coffee or a beer or whatever, but, um, but it's, it's, you know what I mean? There's something about this medium, I think, that really s- supports what you're saying, Seth, in terms of just slowing down and, and, and you know, and actually as we're talking, because we're, we're not across from each other, it's just you really focus on the language being used and the expression of a story and that sort of thing. Um, are you finding the same thing in the podcast world? Do you think there's a, a reason people are attracted to podcasts? Okay, so there's a, a huge asterisk we have to put here, and that gets to the idea in the book of the smallest viable audience. Mm-hmm. If I look at the most popular podcasts, they're AM shock jocks who yell at people, or they're true crime, or they're flavor of the month celebrities. All three are shortcut, non uh, thoughtful, uh, fun ways that people, the masses, can engage with another form of entertainment. So if your goal is to be number one, you have to give up what you stand for and pander to the masses. But my thesis is that the most reliable path is to figure out what's the smallest number of people that you could get by with, the smallest number of people that could support you, and optimize for them. So you know, Hardcore History is one of my favorite podcasts. And Dan Carlin does not apologize for his 11-hour episode about Genghis Khan. So here's a guy with, uh, he may have notes, he doesn't sound like he's reading them, no guests, no music, talking for 11 hours about Genghis Khan. And I got to tell you, I wish it was 12 hours. (laughs) And as a result... Dan is doing fine. He has this audience that pays him, and it's enough. And that opportunity has never shown up in our world before, but it's here right now. To find an audience that's big enough to be enough, where you can do work that you're proud of. Oh, my God. And, and not compromise, eh? There's yeah. no comp- I love that. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think it was a really nice transition as well, Seth, into back to your book, uh, you and I, when we've spoken in the past, we've we've shared uh, some of our our uh, admiration for the Grateful Dead, and I want to I want to talk about this because one of the funny themes about this podcast is, or we think's funny. D- Dave is <laughs> an ex professional hockey player. I know nothing about hockey, and uh, I'm a a musician and a deadhead. So I swear, probably twenty thirty podcasts we reference hockey or Grateful Dead, and. If, if you're cool with this, I want to read just a few little bits from your book, um, because when we're talking about minimal viable audience and options, they, the Grateful Dead nailed this, okay? And then I really want Seth to hear uh, a little bit of your thoughts behind it. So in the book, you say, the dead are almost perfect example of the power of marketing for the smallest viable market. They appealed to a relatively tiny audience and focused on their all of their energy on them. They didn't use radio to spread their ideas to the masses. Instead, they relied on fans to share it to the world, obviously through tapes. Instead of hoping to encourage a large number of people to support them just a little, they relied on a small number of true fans 
who supported them a lot. Now, there's a, a lot more that you wrote about the dead, but I, I f- I'm fully with you that they created a cult, if you will, uh, of fans who follow them all over North America and other bands like Fish and many others have, have followed uh, followed suit. But what is it that that rock and roll example has that we can learn from in the entrepreneurial space? Well, I'm going to skip the part about Phil Lesh having a brief career in the NHL. Um, <laughs> There's a connection. <laughs> well, that's go. good I to know now. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. Uh, that, that, that fixed a, a long road. <laughs> so here's the deal. It's 1972, and the dead have a choice to make because Warner records wants them to make hits because that's the business Warner records is in and Warner records doesn't want them to encourage people to tape their shows because that's the opposite of the business that Warner records is in. And it's worth noting that the dead who were one of the top, maybe the number one touring group, bigger than the Rolling Stones, bigger than Van Morrison, bigger than anybody for 10 years, in 1972, it was pennies. They weren't making a fortune. So here's the choice. The choice is, do you want to play for the people who are in the room or do you want to play for the people who aren't in the room? And that is the genius of Jerry Garcia. Because Jerry said, look, I know we can try to be like the Turtles or the Doors or somebody else with a silly name. Let's just play for the people in the room. And they were consistent with that decision for their entire career. And most bands who dream of stardom don't do that. They don't have they don't say to themselves, we need a whole new set tonight because it's the same people who heard us a week ago. Right? They say, we better play great in Cincinnati so we can get back on the radio so we can get more fans. And it's hard to have the guts to do that. But, you know, I'm no Grateful Dead, but I made the same choice. About six years ago, I said, I'm not looking for new readers. I'm looking for the writing for my existing readers. And if they want to tell someone else, that's fine. But I'm not going to go on Shark Tank. I'm not going to spend my time evangelizing to strangers. <laughs> I am here to connect to the people who want to hear from me. And what happened as a result? Like, what, tell us what, you know, what the, the, the last six years, what's unfolded for you, just, just by... You know, in your, you know, and, and, and um, you know, please feel free to, to brag or boast in any way possible. But I mean, that's, it's so important to hear um, stories of how, you know, when we stick to our principles and when we, when we stick to our core values and we speak to a, that, that small Bible audience, um, it's also great to hear the, you know, the, the outcome of that. My website traffic went down. My book sales went down. And I was thrilled. Because instead of writing a blog post to get more clicks, because I know how to do that. All I have to do is write 10 fast and easy ways to get more traffic to your blog. If I wrote a blog post like that, I'd win the internet, right? And instead, I self-published a book called uh, What to Do When It's Your Turn. And because I self-published it and designed it myself and warehoused it myself and did all the pieces myself, it only sold a few thousand copies the first year. But now it's in its fifth printing and 150,000 copies in print, which for a self-published book that costs 30 bucks is pretty extraordinary. And I had the freedom to make the book I wanted instead of a book a bookstore would be happy with because bookstores aren't happy with books like those. And, you know, instead of trying to figure out how to get my how to get non-readers to 
pick up a book that would appeal to them. I said instead, oh, I get it. I can write an ebook about education, give it away for free, and it'll reach the people I want to reach, and maybe they'll spread it. And that's a good day's work. So that freedom came only because I had spent 15 or 20 years earning a permission base of a million people who want to hear from me. It's enough. And now I can do better work for them instead of chasing the strangers. This is the conclusion of part one of two episodes with Seth Godin. Tune in next week to hear the conclusion of this conversation. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at www.boilingpointpodcast.com to stay in the loop when other epic guests show up on The Boiling Point. Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com and on Twitter at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit Hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening and remember, keep that pot boiling. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.